0: Open your Bibles this morning, please, to John's Gospel, John's Gospel in the third chapter again this morning as we continue looking at Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and let's read all the way down through verse 8 for context to be reminded of what is transpiring here in this text. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born again. Of the Spirit, Father, help us <clears throat> again now as we come to your word, minister to us, and change us into the likeness of your dear son as we absorb all that you have done for us in this glorious miracle of salvation. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus is continuing here. We'll look this morning at verses six and seven. We made it through. Verses 4 and 5, last Lord's Day, and so we come to verses 6 and 7 this morning. As Jesus is continuing in his instruction of Nicodemus, he explains now for us this morning the very radical nature of the new birth. And it is a radical new birth. There can be nothing about our salvation that is mundane. There is absolutely nothing about what Christ has done for us that is earthly or shares any remote likeness in its severity to any other human experience. What Jesus communicates to Nicodemus in Verses six through eight of John chapter three is the radical nature that is the new birth, the radical act of God upon a sinner to transform them from the living or the dead to the living, just as Jesus' own resurrection was a radical event, the radical event in all of human history that he was raised from the dead. None of us. This morning, at least for those of us who live south of here. Would drive past the cemetery this morning on our way back into town. And see a resurrection and think, well, that's normal. Yeah, I remember when that happened last week. You know, it's just ironic. I happen to be passing by at the same time that it happened last Sunday. No, there's there's nothing normal about being passed from death to life. It's radical in every sense of the word. It is unheard of. It is unparalleled. And the only thing we can have as believers that we can remotely say, this is like that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Our coming into spiritual life is literally that transformative, that different, that radical. And so Jesus is instructing His questioner, Nicodemus, in this reality. It's uniquely a spiritual reality. It is confined purely to the the spiritual realm. There's nothing physical in this that remotely parallels to anything in the rest of our lives. And oh, as we come to this passage, that God would grip us with what he has done for us. That we would be moved by what he is saying to Nicodemus. This is the cornerstone of what Jesus came from heaven to accomplish. This is the reason Jesus did what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. That being with God and in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation. And emptied himself and came. This is the bedrock of that. This is the effect of that. This is the fruit of that radical coming Of Jesus, God in flesh, to redeem sinners. And it ends with Jesus saying this to Nicodemus in verse 7. Do not then be amazed that I have said to you, you must be born again. Why is that? Because Nicodemus, you have just proven in the verses previous to this, you don't get it. You've tried to figure out how you're going to go back into your mother's womb, who, as we said last week, if Nicodemus is one of the elder statesmen in Israel, his mother is probably deceased. He's trying to figure out how in the world he's going to be born a second time. And Jesus said, that's proof you don't get it. This is not on this plane. It is uniquely spiritual. You must be born again from above. This is why I came. Nicodemus, don't be amazed that I said this to you. I had to say this to you so that you will understand this salvation that I am preaching, that I have come to secure, demands this. What grace of Jesus. Again, we read that Nicodemus comes at night. Jesus is tired. We read that Nicodemus throws out some rather silly sounding solutions in his own mind to try to figure this out. And yet Jesus is patient. And now we find that Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I told you, you didn't get it. Leave me alone. Let me go to bed. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, do not be amazed, Nicodemus. It's a rebuke. But it is a, a, a rebuke that is clothed in grace. What if Jesus hadn't done those things? What if Jesus hadn't continued to explain to Nicodemus what he means? Nicodemus would have been utterly lost, wouldn't he? It's a hard saying. It's a hard saying that Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this is hard to grasp, especially when your mind is so down here, tied to this world, trying to figure out things from a human perspective. It's hard. But if Jesus hadn't said it, it would certainly have led to Nicodemus' death, not only temporally, but eternally. How can Jesus say, you must be born again? How can He say, do not be amazed? I want you to consider the contrast for just a moment. If Nicodemus, or you, or I, could enter our mother's wombs and be born again, no one would argue that, that humanly speaking, that would be a great thing. A great Event In human history that that someone could actually go back in and, and physically be born again. And, and we would struggle to find adjectives to describe that accurately, wouldn't we? You know, I, I mentioned last week and I was reminded at camp again this week because several of you brought it up that that we overuse the word awesome. But if someone were born again the second time out of their mother's birth, that would be awesome. You don't see that every day. But what is even more awesome, more stunningly unique, is this new birth. It's nowhere near the level of that type of human birth. This spiritual birth is so unique. Jesus says, Nicodemus, don't marvel. Don't be amazed. Don't be astounded. And and again, remember that So many times in the New Testament, when we speak of being amazed, it's not the way we use the word amazement. It is to be scandalized. Shocked. Dumbfounded. Jesus is telling Nicodemus here in verse 7, don't be scandalized by what I'm saying, Nicodemus. Don't be shocked by what I'm saying. Remember who I am. You yourself said it, that no one can do what I do unless God is with me. Nicodemus, think about it. Don't be scandalized then when I tell you, you've got to be born again, even though you can't figure it out. Not in this world, but by this world's reasoning. Nicodemus, remember this. Because even if you were able to go back into your mother's womb and come out again, you'd still be fleshly. No matter how great that event might be, no matter how we would try to describe that, it is still a fleshly birth from this realm, in this realm, with no hope of changing anything about it. You can can make the second series of mistakes just like you made the first ones. You can sin just as easily the second time you come around as you did the first. It would do nothing for you, Nicodemus, being birthed again and again and again and again. As a sinner, by a sinner, from a sinner, will never yield a justified saint. Ever. Just like being baptized doesn't save you once. And were you to be baptized a hundred times, it wouldn't save you on the hundredth time. It's earthly. It's fleshly. It's just a sign we're trying to use. Then physical things to accomplish a spiritual end, and it can't happen. Listen to how Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter eight, in verse six. Paul writes, "For the mind is set on the fle- the mind set on the flesh is death." But the mind that's set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul cuts the legs out from under all of us here. There's nothing in our own efforts, there's nothing in our own experience That we can do. There are no magic words that we can say or pray. It has to be a spiritual thing that transforms us from death to life. And so, like Nicodemus, dear friend, dear brother, dear sister, don't be amazed at the radical nature of the new birth. Don't be scandalized by that. Don't be be troubled by that don't be bothered by your inability to affect it I'd rather be thankful because it is if it is something you could do you would get what you can do and that is to produce more death and more death and more death it takes God the Father, it takes God the Son, it takes God the Spirit, stepping in and interrupting the circuit, as it were, to bring about something new and something different. How many of our loved ones, how many of our friends have we seen trapped in religious systems? That tell you just to keep doing and to keep doing and to keep doing and to keep doing. And then at the end of all the doing, then. Only to get to the end of your rope and you've done all you feel you can do and there is still no change. That's cruelty. That is hate. That is not the love of God, even though this may sound Tough, and these may be hard truths to swallow. They are the truth that can only lead to a saving outcome and a saving reality. Don't be scandalized. Jesus produces saving results with what He is saying. This new birth comes from Him who comes from above. It comes from a realm and a place that is completely unlike anything we are or can do. We need that realm outside of us to invade our own space. We need Christ to invade our life. We need the Spirit to stop us where we are and save us from ourselves, just like Nicodemus needs. Nicodemus needs to have his Pharisaism stop dead in its tracks. Because Nicodemus is still pushing to go down that road. It's the only road he knows. It's where he wants to go. It's where his flesh tells him to go. It's where his pride tells him to go. It's where his intellect tells him to go. Because after all, that's all he knows. Just like that's all we know. Until God stops us. And interrupts us and causes us to understand our true spiritual condition. And our only hope as being from him. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus going to persecute the church. Paul is just like Nicodemus. He's going to do what he knows to do, what his flesh tells him to do, what his tradition tells him to do, what his intellect tells him to do. He's going to go do it and he's going to do it passionately because he believes it's the right thing to do. And unless God stops Paul, there's dead Christians in Damascus. But God stopped Paul. Dead in his tracks and he causes Paul to look up through eyes of faith because he's blinded by the experience and God interrupts and he short circuits Paul. That's a position we all have to be brought to and that Jesus is bringing Nicodemus to We need something outside of ourselves. We need an alien, a foreign righteousness that is beyond what we can do, imputed to our account that can come from Christ alone. We need an alien life, a foreign life. We are dead in our trespasses and sin with no hope, no life. We need Christ's resurrected life coursing through our veins. We need an alien birth. We need the Spirit's To to use the old Puritan word, vivification. The the bringing to life. We need the Spirit's life to be brought upon us. To open our eyes to see. Our ears to hear. Our minds to, to comprehend. And our hearts to believe. We need that. And apart from that, there is no new birth. There's none. It's a work of God. It is monergistic, meaning God alone at work. It is sovereign. It is unstoppable because He's King and He will accomplish what He determines to accomplish. It is effective in the power of regeneration. It's not, well, maybe it worked. No, it worked. It's not that man should not boast in his salvation. It is literally that man cannot boast in his salvation. Do you understand that? There's a huge difference there. It's not just, oh, you shouldn't boast in your salvation. That makes it sound like there's something we could boast in, we just shouldn't. No, no, no. According to Jesus, where's the Nicodemus? There's nothing you can boast of. You don't have anything. You're spiritually bankrupt. This is all of grace and it's all of me. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I have nothing to offer. It's been well said in the past that we contribute nothing to our salvation other than this. The sin that made it necessary. That's all we bring. It's all we bring to the table. J.C. Ryle wrote, There is no self-curative power in man. He will only always go on reproducing himself. More and more of me. More and more of you. More and more of sin. D.A. Carson says that like generates like. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Don't be amazed, Nicodemus, that I said, you've got to be born again, but that birth that comes upon you will not be from you or from anything you are familiar with or could compare it to. It is a radically new creation. One with no ties to this fleshly fallen life. None. Hey, listen. To turn a new leaf is still to turn a leaf. We need something different. Invasively, radically different. We're not into turning leaves. The gospel is not, well, hey, I turned a new leaf. No, no, no. The the gospel is this. You had your tree uprooted, root and all. And replaced with something completely different. We don't turn new leaves. We don't reform. We don't polish. We don't do anything. We must be stopped dead in our tracks we must be excised like a cancerous tumor and the righteousness of God put into us by the work of the Spirit. And apart from that, there's nothing. A.W. Pink wrote, Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And the only way for us to be prepared is to be prepared by the only source of preparation that exists, and that is the Spirit of God. That which from, is from above, Jesus says. That which is of the Spirit, not of the flesh. and That which is produced by the, 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 the person, the very personal person of the Spirit of God Himself. Just as a small aside here for a moment, That's one of the real detriments that Christianity has suffered, I think, and and I understand why in so many cases, but we don't understand who the Holy Spirit is. We've allowed people who have abused Him and misrepresented Him and lied about Him to cause us to back away from it from being fucked. Crazy if we talk about Him. But brothers and sisters, He is to be worshipped, loved, and adored as much as the Father, the Son. He is co-equal. He is God. And we must have the life that only He is and can bring to us if we are to have any hope in this world. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, here in verses 6 and 7, that, that Nicodemus, listen to me. Listen to me. This saving hope is so otherworldly. It is, it is so outside of the world that you are trying to fit it into that you're missing the point. Because if the gospel were in any way related to, to something we could do in this realm, in this world, by our strength, we would get what that can produce. And we see what it produces, don't we? We see what a world without the gospel is. We see it in the world around us. Now, tragically, we see it in far too many Churches. We have had a man-centered gospel that gives you what a man-centered gospel will do, and that is a train wreck on steroids. To even shroud the gospel, to clothe the gospel in worldly language and in worldly terms and in worldly ways of understanding it, is to proclaim the wrong message. Notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus. There's nothing, Nicodemus, that you can compare this to. That which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the spirit is spirit. We can't even say it's apples to apples here. It's apples to oranges. Totally different. Radically different. And this is how we should proclaim it, by the way. When we preach the gospel, if we are to preach it in the power of a resurrected Christ and in the power of an omnipotent spirit, we must proclaim it as radically different. And we must remind men and women they are sinners incapable of anything good in the sight of God. The new birth is radically different. We must... Proclaim it that way. We should surround it with radically different language. In otherworldly speak. Just as Jesus is doing here. Not so overly simplistic. Not so worldly in its jargon and vernacular that it's so dumbed down. That it's like, oh, well, I'm already doing that. Oh, well, I've done that. Oh, well, I've already joined this. Well, I've given. Well, I'm pretty good. I was shocked. I came home from camp. What a great week we had! But I've been, you know, out of the loop and not been following or keeping up with things much. It's nice to unplug. We all need to unplug. But I came home and was checking up on several things and was greatly dismayed. Friday evening to read post from the gospel coalition which needs to be renamed yesterday and they said this quoting a very famous author said you know we need to quit speaking talking about the gospel and trying to convince people they're sinners and trying to show them that there's a need for their sin and they're just sinners what we need to do is talk to people about their anxiety." That's not the gospel. That is the furthest thing from the gospel. We must reject that. We must speak in otherworldly terms, not the psychobabble of the world. They have nothing to do with each other. First Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, writing in the defining moment of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus here in this chapter, also writes this, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam then became a life-giving spirit. Sounds familiar to the language Jesus is using in John 3, doesn't it? However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual, meaning you're born and then... The spiritual new birth. The first man is from the earth. He is earthy. The second man is from heaven. As if the earthly, so also those who are earthly. And is is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. There's a new birth that's needed. And it's radical radical you know the details to Nicodemus may have been new but the expectation shouldn't have been new. as we go back to John chapter 3 and Nicodemus is wrestling through this he, he shouldn't have been so astounded that's why Jesus says do not marvel do not be amazed don't be scandalized why because Nicodemus had Ezekiel 36 Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, God says. Nicodemus is familiar with that. So Jesus says you shouldn't be scandalized when I say you must be born again because obviously it takes something that radical, that different. Notice Jesus' statement is one of absolute necessity. Would you notice that? Do not be amazed when I said to you, you must. Do you hear that? Must be born again. You must be born again now we live in a culture that shuns all absolutes don't we there's nothing absolute about anything that's why the gospel's so offensive it's absolute there's no variation there's no American spin on it, an African spin on it, a Russian spin on it. There is not a male or female uh, spin on it. There's not an older young spin. It is what it is and it is unchangeable. As much as gravity or the universe or the laws of it, it is an unchanging absolute. And Jesus says you must. And to our ears that have been more influenced by the culture than we probably want to think it has that can almost sound a little off-putting but you realize that is the most gracious thing that Jesus could have said to Nicodemus Nicodemus you must if you don't you die Nicodemus the bridge is washed out ahead you must stop how absolute yeah Thank God for it. Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is no hope without it. I'm reminded of the dying words of J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary so many years ago after his valiant battle against liberalism at Princeton. He finally broke away and... Founded Westminster Seminary. He, he wrote the, the classic work Christianity and Liberalism. He was a warrior for truth. He was one of the original early fundamentalists. And I use that term in the best possible sense. And on his deathbed, he wrote, he wired to his colleagues, so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. No hope without it. Final words. Powerful words. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look Nicodemus. There is no hope without this new birth. And if we must have it. Then we should not marvel. That such a birth must come from the spirit himself. Because let's be honest, we all know what we are. We all know what we are. That's why the the world has to fight so hard to convince themselves that they are not what their conscience tells them they are. If you really are the bastion of virtue and the bastion of tolerance and all these good qualities that we're told that we all have and innately possess, then why do you have to be so loud about it? If you're that convinced, go on, live it out, go. Go on your way. But no, we're in a constant quest to affirm ourselves to ourselves. Why? Because we know what we are. We know that we're sinners. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, doesn't he, that that nature and conscience itself testifies to our depravity, to our sinfulness. And we are earthy, to use Paul's word. But praise God, he didn't leave us earthy. He sent the last Adam, who is heavenly, who is spiritual who, as Paul says, is a life-giving spirit. How utterly confusing this message is to dying ears and to lost ears, to Nicodemus' ears, and yet at the same time, how freeing. He who has ears, who have been made alive by the Spirit, will hear this great proclamation. They will believe what Jesus is saying here. Let me ask you a question this morning. Let me ask you an honest question. What do you hear? What do you hear? Does your mind hear the words of Jesus and rest? Does your mind hear the words of Jesus and believe? Or do your ears hear a foreign sound that says this is absolute, utter nonsense? To The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. What do you hear? Well, that depends on what happens next, as Jesus explains in verse 8. Would you look at verse 8? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus, as He does at the beginning of chapter 3, anticipates Nicodemus's true questions and He jumps the gun before Nicodemus can ask the question. Jesus has explained what the new birth is. But the next question would be, how does one attain the new birth? How does one come to experience the new birth? Where does the new birth come from? The parallel with our natural birth being understood. If we played no role, Jesus is saying, in your first birth, then how do you obtain a part or a role in the second birth, the new birth. And every human being that's ever been born, every fallen human being, because that is every human being who's ever been born, wants to know, just like Nicodemus, well, what do we need to do? What do I need to do to obtain the new birth? We want action. We are... Men and women of action. We want to do. We want to go. We want to grab hold of something that we can self-assure ourselves with because we controlled it. We did it. We want that. That's our basic nature. We want to hold on to things. You've ever wondered why systems... Religious systems can entrap people in the most bizarre behavior. Well, you've got to give this much. and You've got to go do this and you've got to go do that. And you have to live this way and you've got to do that. And we look at those people, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, I do. And I say, who would keep going to another man who sins just like me to confess his sins and think that somehow that's going to miraculously cure him? It doesn't work. Why, why would you give your life and risk literally life and limb to go on a hajj to a holy city and make pilgrimage at the risk of being trampled to death? Why would people keep doing that? Over and over and over. You know why? They want something they can look back on and they got their little certificate and says, I did this. I'm good. Their pride, and they may not know it as pride because they're broken in their pride, but it is pride nonetheless. It wants to know it did something. And Jesus says, It's not how it works. It's not how it works. The truth that Jesus is speaking in verse 8, loved ones, is this. It's not a truth that's able to be digested and understood by earthy people. Why? Because there's nothing of them in the verse. We've all had toddlers. Most of us have had toddlers around our life in some way and in some form. And at some point, those little toddlers, they like to be the center of tension. Don't they? Watch me. Look at me. Hear me. You realize that's the fallen state of man before God. Look at me. Hear me. Look what I've done. Let me show off in front of you, God. And God says with the prophet Isaiah, I look at your right attempts at righteousness and all I see are filthy rags. You sure you want me to watch? Are you sure? That's not what I see. And yet we in our pride and our lostness, we can't hear what Jesus is saying. And this doesn't make any sense because I'm not in the verse. I am nowhere to be found in verse eight as it relates to me participating in some way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, But a natural man, Paul says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. As my parents said to me, Growing up, it's like talking to a brick wall. Over the head. Why? Our pride and our self sufficiency make us uncomfortable, just as it is doing with Nicodemus, with what Jesus is saying here. And yet, the beautiful thing is this this is not new, it's not out of the blue. It's not random. This has been the whole story of Scripture. From Genesis until now, man has done nothing to contribute to God's glory and God's goodness by his own strength. No, notice, if we went back to John chapter 1, verse 3, guess what we would find? God, through the Word, created all things and there was nothing made. It was not made through him. Principle, foundational principle laid down there, right? God is the source. He grants the right of adoption in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. To as many as received him to, to them, he had given the power to become the sons of God. Not by the will of flesh, not by the will of man, but by God, right? He's the source of our spiritual birth. And so, John has written so that our minds are well prepared then to receive what Jesus says in verse 8. When the question is preemptively asked, where does it come from? The answer most easily given, cutting to the chase, is this. Jesus says, from my spirit. from my spirit it's the only place the new birth comes from there's absolutely nothing man does to bring about the new birth nothing absolutely nothing how do i know that look at verse eight the wind blows where it wishes and you you do you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. We in West Texas are all PhDs in wind. You can wake up. Morning's beautiful. Sky's clear. It's blue. By lunchtime, there has been one of these haboob winds that comes about out of... Where did that... That wasn't... Wait, let me get my weather app out. That wasn't supposed to happen today right dust devils we driving back from camp Nicole and I were marveling how many dust devils we saw where does that come from I don't know you tell me can you harness it no can you say hey listen I've got something set up over here my lawn so nice and neat. would you please blow that way so as not to destroy my garden it's not listening. let's be honest People talk about, oh, plant this or that as a wind barrier. (laughs) Right. It just knocks it down. Keeps on going. That's the power of the wind. And yet we have no power over it. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how it got there. We don't know where it's going. We're sure not going to slow it down. Jesus says, now you're starting to get the new birth. Some might argue that our witness... Our evangelization, our preaching, our faith, our profession bring about the new birth. But that's not it at all. Because those things we control. Those things we know when they started and when they're going to end. We can control how and when and what and why and where. We can do all those things. Jesus says that's not like the new birth. No, those things may be a result of the new birth, but they are not the cause of the new birth. We want to hold on to what we can quantify and understand. And Jesus just confuses all of that. That's a good thing. Because He's bringing us to the end of ourselves. And you know what you are. And I know what I am. And the sooner that we're gone, the better. The sooner the old man is put to death... And Jesus says, listen, the new birth is like that. The power of the new birth is not the means. It's not the response. It is the cause of means and response. Notice. In fact, just flip over so you see it. I want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it in Scripture. Look at John chapter 6. Let's go down to verse 63, shall we? Let's back up to verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Ah, ha, ha. Earthy minds. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Now notice verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me. Unless it has been granted him from the father. There's the wind. Where did the new birth come from? From a gracious grant. By the Heavenly Father. It's not alone. It's a gift. It is a gift of unmerited grace. Now, notice the next verse, verse 66. Because it's hard to grasp this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They heard the truth, but they rejected it. In favor of holding on to something they could control, they leave Jesus. They walk away from Jesus. What a tragedy. Why? Because the teaching had cut across the grain of their self-sufficiency. And it places all power in the hands of God to save whom He will, how He will, when He will. And that is unacceptable to us. We want a God who responds to us. Not us to Him. And this is why over and over in Scripture you find that it is often the broken and the destitute and the lame and the poor and the criminals and the humble and the lowly who come most easily to Jesus. You know why? They know what they are. They've got nothing to hold on to. They don't need to be told they need outside help. They realize that's the only kind of help there is. And so they come to Jesus more easily. Oh, that we would have our pride crushed that we would come to Jesus as easily. This answer for Nicodemus, go back to John 3. Must have been another jolt of electric shock through his system. His entire life was built around a system of predictability. Everything in a Pharisee's life, everything in a conscientious Jew's life was built around a system of predictability. The feast came at the same time every year. You went to the temple and the tabernacle to offer sacrifices at the same time every year. You went to the synagogue every Sabbath, and you did the same things over and over. And it was so predictable. And like so many man-made systems, it became a thing of, if you do two plus two, it'll be four. If you do this, you do that, then you're right with God. Doesn't matter. You can do it mindlessly. And here Jesus grabs Nicodemus by the lapels, and he says, Nicodemus, listen to me. Let me turn your world upside down so that you don't perish with this world. The wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it came from. You can't control where it's going. So it is with the Spirit of God. But but Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus, it's real clear. Those who keep the law, and we can tell who's keeping the law. We've got notes. We've got files. We can predict that. We know where it's going. We know how it's going to happen. I can understand that. I can grasp that. And Jesus says, that's the point. You can grasp it. Therefore, it is earthy. And it will perish with this earth. Nicodemus, you need something different. Jesus just utterly destroys that. Where is the wind? Where is it going? Can you control it? Did you start it? Did you stop it? That's the new birth. It comes upon those whom God puts it upon. And it accomplishes its purposes. And then, praise God, we see the effects, don't we? Just like the wind. It comes upon us and out of nowhere... And we see its effects. We see its effects. We see the change of life. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, unless it happens in that way, there's no new birth. You don't invoke the wind with your works. You don't invoke the wind with your words or your wishes or your prayers or your religious pursuits or your emotions, or your feelings, or your experiences. Nicodemus, you don't do that with the wind. You don't do it with the Spirit either. The new birth comes outside of you. And that includes your ability to fully grasp why, how, when, where. But when it comes, but when it comes, you'll know that it has come. I want you to look over now in Titus chapter 3 with me. Larry read it earlier. I asked him to read that intentionally this morning. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Not even our good attempts. But according to His mercy. To His mercy. By what? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. How did we come to be children of God? Because God renewed us and washed us and regenerated us. We did not do that. And let me go further and say, we did not trigger it. We didn't stand at the top of the mountain with a stone in front of us And say, now watch what my faith will do. And push the boulder over the edge with a finger so that it tumbles down the hill and we see it's affecting. No, no, no. Jesus says, that's not how it works. You are saved because the Spirit has come upon you and regenerated you. Now, if you'll hang with me for just a minute. you might be saying, this makes no sense. Don't I have to believe? Don't I have to confess? Don't I have to ask? Yes, you do. But you believe and you confess and you ask Because you have been regenerated. You see, theologians break down the... the, You know... We can talk about salvation like it's one simple idea. But there's so much there. We'll chew on it for all of eternity. We'll worship Christ for all eternity around the doctrine of salvation. Because... The more you think about it, the more there is to think about. The more you know of God, the more you realize there is to learn of God. The more you realize what Christ did, the more you'll realize how much more you need to know about what Christ has done. It's never ending. It's large. It's massive. And so to try to help us understand that theologians throughout the history of the church have broken down the doctrine of salvation into little bite-sized pieces that we can start to chew on and say, okay, I get that, now I get that, now I get that. Just like we start our babies on milk, and then we move them to baby food, and then on and on. Well, theologians have come up with what they call the Order of salvation or the ordo salutis in the old days. And it's simply what came first. Did justification or conversion or regeneration and they start to put they start to to, to divide this into aspects of salvation It's all salvation, but it's the aspect. And what we find that there's broad agreement throughout the history of the church and certainly throughout scripture that regeneration otherwise known as the new birth comes first. You're made alive. You're made to understand I'm a sinner. You're made to understand I'm in need of a savior. your your, your mind begins to comprehend, and not just in an academic way, but in a personal way. That's me he's talking about. I need Christ. It wasn't enough for mom and dad to have it. It's not enough for my church to have it. I need Christ. Which, closely on the heels of that, simultaneously with that, comes the knowledge of The reality that, yes, I believe that. Yes, I call upon the name of the Lord. You sure do. You sure better. According to Paul, Romans chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and 13. When you hear the word proclaimed, the word pierces your heart. The spirit makes you alive. You understand your need. You understand where the solution is. You understand God grants you the faith to believe. And you respond. Now, from a human side, we look back at times and we go. Well, I'm saved because I believed. Understand where that's coming from. But understand this, you believe because you were made alive. And all who are made alive will believe. God doesn't make alive. To then turn around and go. No. Nah. No no those whom he makes alive. Come to him. And he as this will say later in John chapter 6. He cast out no one. He loses no one. You say well Brian where does that come from. Would you flip over to John chapter 17? The most beautiful prayer in all of Scripture. This is truly the Lord's prayer. Matthew chapter 6 is the disciples' prayer. When they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's our prayer. (laughs) This is Jesus' prayer to his Father shortly before he's crucified. Notice what he says. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, he's the sovereign. He's king of everyone. But notice now a limited statement that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know how they believe that the spirit made them alive and caused them to believe? I know. Listen, verse four, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He hasn't even died yet, but so perfect is his divine, sovereign plan of salvation. He can speak as if it's already done. I have finished it. Now, Father. Glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. God's greatest glory is seen in His salvation of the greatest sinner. That's me, and that's you. And notice that Jesus' prayer says that this glory was manifest when? When? Before the world was. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit in Trinitarian determination, determined to enact a plan of salvation to redeem sinners. Think about that. We sing this song, when He was on the cross, I was on His mind. You've heard that old song? It's true. But I'll one-up you. Before the world was created, I was on His mind. Before the world was created, I was the reason He determined to come. You say, why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. It's important that this happened before time, before the world was. Why? So it's unaffected by the world in time. It's unable to be swayed. Because it was set so far back. The plan of redemption, the plan of regeneration, all of these things, that's where it comes from. That's what undergirds and sits behind Jesus' statements to Nicodemus in, Nick, in John chapter 3. Herman Ritterboss said For the freedom of the Spirit to go where He pleases is not capricious, but it is power that nothing can hold back. You see, we look at that and we may say, ah, it doesn't sound very nice. Like the, the, the wind goes where it wants and the Spirit goes where it wants. Yeah, what that's really saying is that there's nowhere the Spirit can't go when He determines to go there. Nothing stops Him. Nothing stops Him. That is why I've said for a long time, our evangelism starts on our knees. Because the Spirit can go places we'll never go. He can go to the heart. He can go to the mind. He can go in the middle of the night. He can go on a deathbed. He can go anywhere, anytime, for any reason, at any point, in any way. The Spirit is unbounded. And what He determines to accomplish he accomplishes that's why the great missionaries of old looked at passages like this looked at doctrines like this and got on ships packed their worldly belongings in their own coffins and went to foreign lands you know why they believed the spirit would move there and were willing to die Jesus uses the perfect tense of the verbs in verse 8. You do not know. You can't comprehend. It's beyond you. And the one born of the Spirit is born. Perfect tense, without exception, fully completed, locked down, sealed forever. Both of these are fixed realities. And we see the effects. We see the effects. We see what happens when God works in hearts and lives. We we see the power of changed lives, don't we? I I just got to tell you guys that weren't there this past week. And I'm not trying to guilt trip you while I guilt trip you. But if you didn't get to go to camp, I hope you go next. year. But I sat there for three days and I watched and I observed and I saw where the Spirit had been. I saw sinners from such diverse backgrounds with diverse interests and diverse personalities. Where the world would say, whoa, there's going to be, when anytime you get 64 people together, there's surely got to be some conflict, and there was none. I saw the fruit of the Spirit. I saw what happens when God changes lives, what people live like, how they are different. You see it in your home, you see it in your life, you've seen it in others' lives. It just is different. And we see its effect, don't we? We see people who believe like we believe. We see people whose hope and joy and confidence is Jesus and nothing but Jesus. We see people who are eager to share and to tell that story to others that by their telling that may be the time the spirit moves in that hearer's life. Like Spurgeon said, if I knew everybody that the Spirit was going to move upon, I'd go through London. If God marked their back with a yellow stripe, I'd go lift everybody's shirt in London and start preaching to them. But we preach broadly. We teach broadly. We plead broadly. Because we never know when the Spirit's going to move, do we? But we sow the seeds. And when the Spirit comes and He Affects those seeds he makes alive, oh, we see the fruit. Perhaps it's the old hymn writer Daniel Whittle who summarized it best when he wrote this I know, know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing us of sin. Revealing Jesus through the Word. Creating faith in Him. Straight out of John 3. Where the Spirit moves, there is no doubt about who has moved. There's no doubt about what He's done. And there's no doubt about why He's done it. So that God alone receives the glory. Both Father, Son, and Son. And spirit let's bow our heads and pray maybe you're here this morning and you say you know I've never never had an interest in spiritual things I've never cared about my sin I've never cared about who God was I love my life I love myself there's just I have no interest but this morning the spirit opened my ears, and I began to think about some things. And I came to the realization that I don't know Christ. And that I need Christ because I am a sinner. I must be saved. I must be born again. And this morning for the first time, I I understand that. And I need to be born again. I, I need what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about. I need new life. If that's true of you, don't ignore. I plead with you, don't ignore what God is doing in your mind and your heart. If the Holy Spirit is urging you to confess your sin to Jesus Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is God at work within you. Do not fight it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe he is the payment for your sins. You see, people in whom God is not working don't even give it a thought. But people in whom God is working begin to think about those things. If you have questions about that, if you're unsure of those things, would you talk to me after the service? I'll be in the lobby. Pull me aside. We'll pray. We'll talk. We'll look at God's Word together, okay? Father, send Your Spirit in ways and in places and at times that I cannot go to do and effect a work that no man can effect. And that's as it should be. Because You alone deserve the honor, the glory, the power, the praise that comes from salvation. We are dead and we need you to make us alive. Thank you for those who believe that's just fruit and proof that they have been made alive to see the glories of salvation in Christ. Father, for those who have not yet believed, make them alive and Give them faith and cause them to believe. Cause them to bow the knee, to respond to the Spirit's work in their life. And show them the fruit of your work. And fill us all with increasing joy and fruit that only comes from trees that the Spirit has planted and watered and brought to being. Thank You, Father, for Your divine work of redemption and salvation. We praise You and You alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.